You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Anybody here? A martyr for the Christian faith? One? That's a little bit of a trick question, I'll be honest with you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascended, He said to His disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses. Martus is the Greek word from which we get our word martyr. Did you know that a martyr is only a witness? Did you know that a martyr is a witness? It's a martus. It's translated witness 29 times in the New Testament. It's translated martyr three times in the New Testament. But when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, He said, you will be my martyrs. And the word originally was a, a legal word that referred to somebody who would offer testimony concerning something they had witnessed or uh, experienced in a court of law. And they were, con- they were called martus. They were witnesses, people who testified to something. And then in the Christian realm, it took on a, a brand new meaning of one who testified or verbally spoke as to something they were witnesses of. When Peter wanted to replace Judas as an apostle, they chose somebody who was a witness of the resurrection. Somebody who could verbally give testimony that they had seen the risen Christ. A martus. But it was not long before the idea of verbally expressing your testimony to the faith came to mean that you would give your life for the faith. Because it wasn't many years into the Christian existence of Christians in Jerusalem that the word martyr took on a whole new meaning. It went from being a legal witness to somebody who could testify as to the truth of the Christ's and His claims and His death and His burial and His resurrection and what the Gospel meant. And it began to morph into the idea of somebody who would testify with their life by giving their life and shedding their blood as a testimony to the truth of the Christian faith. So a witness or a martyr is somebody who gives testimony with their life by giving their life to the truth of Christianity. A martyr is a witness. Now, how many martyrs do we have for the Christian faith? See, all of you suddenly became martyrs, didn't you? Didn't know you were martyrs before you came here this morning. But you are. You're witnesses. It wasn't long, and just within about 70 years, where it was commonplace for Christians to be giving up their lives for the faith. It just happened. Historical testimony and tradition says that 11 of the 12 apostles gave their lives as martyrs. Peter, according to tradition, was crucified in Rome upside down because he wasn't willing to be crucified like his Lord and didn't deem himself worthy to be crucified like Christ. So he requested to be crucified upside down. According to tradition, the Apostle Paul was beheaded. Both Peter and Paul died within a very short period of time of each other under Nero's persecution, which Nero started in 63 A.D. Over the course of the next 250 years, hunting and killing Christians became sort of the sport of Roman emperors and Christians became the whipping post for every Roman emperor that lived between Nero and Constantine in the year 313. 
In fact, outside of Rome, outside the city of Rome, there are underground tunnels called catacombs, some 600 miles of this labyrinth type of tunnel work under the city of Rome, where Christians in Rome, when they were persecuted, would flee to the catacombs and literally go underground and live. And nobody knows for sure, but archaeologists have estimated that there is between 1.8 and 4 million Christians who are interred in the catacombs underneath of Rome. That is serious persecution. It all started somewhere where some individual gave his life as a witness to the truth of Christ. And you know who the first Christian martyr was, don't you? Stephen. At least he's the first one recorded in history. He is the first one recorded in Scripture. And as far as I know, there are only two of them listed in the book of Acts. One of them is Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And the other one is James the Apostle, who is John's brother. And he just gets one sentence in Acts chapter 12, where Luke says he was put to death with the sword by Herod. That's all the first apostle who's martyred gets. Just one sentence reference. But Stephen is the first Christian who is martyred, and he becomes kind of a prototype, kind of a standard of how if you're going to be martyred and you're going to die well, this is how you do it. And Stephen modeled it. And so Luke gives us two entire chapters on Stephen. To put that in perspective, we've only had five chapters of the Acts of all 12 of the apostles up to this point. But Acts chapter 6 focuses on Stephen And he gets two whole chapters all to himself. All of Acts chapter 6, all of Acts chapter 7, and a good portion working its way into Acts chapter 8 as well. So turn in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 6. We saw last week how Stephen was, or last time, two weeks ago, we saw how Stephen was introduced in the book of Acts. He was one of these seven men out of thousands of potential candidates. He was one of seven who was selected for this important ministry of distributing food and supplies to needy widows in the Jerusalem church and in that community. And Luke tells us that when they looked for men to give this commission to, that they had to be full of wisdom and the Spirit and a good reputation. And then down in verse 5 where Stephen is introduced, Luke tells us that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And now as we pick up the story in verses 8 through verse 15, we catch a little bit more of a glimpse as to just what kind of a man Stephen was. And we're going to notice three things about him this morning. First, we're going to focus on his character. Second, on his capabilities. And then third, on his countenance or his his calm in the face of a storm. I want you to notice, first of all, his character. Look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now Luke wants us to understand something significant about Stephen. Up in chapter 6, verse 3, they look for men who are of good reputation, full of wisdom and the Spirit. Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Luke says Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then here in verse 8, it says he was full of grace and of power. At the end of chapter 7, verse 55, it says that Luke, or Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Luke wants you to understand something about Stephen. What is it? He was full. He was a full man. What was he full of? The Spirit of God. Four times Luke tells us that about Stephen. He was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God. Out of the thousands of potential men in Jerusalem to take over this benevolent ministry, they chose seven. One of them was Stephen. 
And he stood out above the other seven because Luke says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. This is a man who under the apostles stood out above thousands of other men as somebody who was marked by a fullness of the Spirit of God. And then when he selected, Luke says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Here he's full of grace and of power. And at the end of chapter 7, Luke reminds us again, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now you might ask yourself, how could a man endure what Stephen did and do so with that type of character, that type of resolve, and that type of confidence? You know how he did it? He was full of the Spirit of God. If you met Stephen, the one thing you would notice about him is that he is controlled by the Spirit of God. It was evidenced in a way in, in Stephen's life. Not only was he full of grace, but he was full of power. And then Luke goes on to describe to us how that power manifested itself. He performed signs and wonders in the presence of all the people. Now what's interesting about Stephen is he's one of only three exceptions in the book of Acts that Luke gives us to the general rule that signs and wonders were performed at the hands of the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, Luke says, at the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders were performed. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders were done. But here we have an exception to that because Stephen is not an apostle. And some have suggested, well, how come it is then if Stephen is not an apostle that he had the ability to perform signs and wonders? One reason is because he was full of the Holy Spirit. But I think another reason is because he is so closely linked to the apostolic ministry. Because the only people who are even the exceptions to that are Philip and Stephen, both of whom have had their hands laid on by the apostles in Acts chapter 6 and commissioned to this ministry. And the other one is Barnabas, who received the commissioning to apostolic ministry with Paul. So the general rule is signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. But there are a couple exceptions. And Luke tells us, Stephen is one of them. He performed signs and wonders, but he was closely associated with the apostolic ministry. Although he wasn't an apostle, the Spirit of God did evidence himself through Stephen in performing these miracles. But don't for a minute begin to think that if you're filled with the Spirit of God, that you're going to be able to perform signs and wonders. Because the ability to perform signs is not the evidence of the filling of the Spirit. Because there are people, millions of them, who were filled, have been filled, and today are filled with the Spirit, who do not have the ability, like the apostles, to perform signs and wonders. What is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? In your mind, ask yourself, what is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Worship, praise, and mutual submission. Those are the characteristics of the filling of the Spirit. And not only could Stephen perform signs and wonders amongst the people, but I think there was something else that marked Stephen. He was a man who sang psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He sung and made melody in his heart to the Lord. And he was an individual who was subject to everyone in the fear of Christ. He was a meek, humble, mild individual. Now, is the filling of the Spirit just for apostles? Is it just for deacons? Is it just for the super spiritual elite among us? Or is it for every believer? It's for every believer. And Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And then Paul goes on to talk about submission. Guess what? The filling of the Spirit and letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you, they're the same thing. 
To be filled with the Spirit is to be subject to the Spirit of God. It is to obey the Word of God and to let His Word dwell within us, to control us, to guide us, to direct us, to empower us. It is a yieldedness. It's not an esoteric, ecstatic experience where we fall into a trance state and lose control. That is not the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is a humble walk with Christ where His Word dwells in us and we are controlled by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. And that is available and responsible for every Christian to be filled with the Spirit. Stephen was such a man. He was full of the Spirit. That was his character. Now next I want you to look at his capabilities. Verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and they argued with Stephen. The word argue there is a word that meant to publicly, formally debate an individual. This is not an argument like you had with your wife on the way to church this morning. This is a formal public debate regarding a topic or an issue. That's the word that Luke uses. There was a synagogue, and it was the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, the freedmen were people who had been slaves in other parts of the Roman Empire, and then they would purchase their freedom or earn their freedom or be granted their freedom. So they had once been slaves, now they are free. And a freedman was somebody who had been freed as a slave, or his descendants were also called freedmen. Well, there was a synagogue of freedmen where these people from different parts of the Roman Empire who once had been slaves and then had been freed and their descendants, they met for worship. And there were synagogues of all sorts and all kinds in Jerusalem. One estimate I read said there were 420 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem at this time. I think that might be a high estimate. That's almost the number of churches in Sandpoint. That's a pretty high number to have of synagogues in one city. But the point is that you would have Jews who have this cultural background or came from this region, they would meet in a synagogue because they spoke a certain dialect. And another group of Jews spoke another dialect and came from a different part of the Roman Empire. When they were in Jerusalem, they met at this synagogue. There was a synagogue of freedmen, people who had been slaves who met at the synagogue of the freedmen. They came from Alexandria, Cilicia. Some of them, Luke says, were Cyrenians and Asia. Now, don't just blow all of that off as just a meaningless detail. There's an important detail even in the places where the freedmen came from. One of the important details is in the region of Cilicia. It had a chief city or a principal city. Their capital city was a city known as Tarsus. You know anybody from Tarsus? The book of Acts? You know any Jews who came from Tarsus who were in Jerusalem at this time? You know any Jews who were from Tarsus who were in Jerusalem at this time who happened to hate Christians who maybe were in the synagogue of the freedmen and who were instrumental in the death of Stephen? What's his name? Saul. You say he just appears out of nowhere in chapter 7 and chapter 8. No, he doesn't. He doesn't appear out of nowhere. Likely this is Saul's synagogue. And some have suggested that Stephen himself, since he has a Hellenistic name, not a native Hebrew name, Stephen himself was part of the synagogue of the freedmen. And that Stephen probably became a believer in Christ. And as a result of that, he started to have these discussions with people in his synagogue, Saul being one of them. And so they arranged a public debate and they put Stephen up and they put some other men up to debate Stephen on these issues. Now, we're not told what the subject of the debate is, but we can infer a tremendous amount from the accusations that they're going to bring against him in just a little bit. 
But if you had a man who was from Tarsus, who was trained at the feet of Gamaliel in your synagogue, who would you put up to debate Stephen? You'd put Saul up there, wouldn't you? You don't study under a greater mind than Gamaliel. You don't have a greater student of the Scriptures and a master of the Old Testament than Saul of Tarsus. I think it's possible, probable, that Saul was involved in this debate in some way and that this was his synagogue that launched this whole thing against Stephen. Because he doesn't just happen to be walking by when Stephen gets stoned and people throw their coats at his feet. No, no, no. Saul is in the background of this whole thing. He's watching this unfold because he puts his hearty approval to the death of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. Why did he do that? Because he's here at the beginning of this. Interesting thing to note, Paul says later on that he acquired his Roman citizenship with a large sum of money because one of the governors asked him, were you born a Roman citizen? He says, no, I acquired it with a large sum of money. What's that tell you about what Paul or his ancestors likely were? Probably a freedman. Probably some slavery there in his background. Now he's a Roman citizen. This was, I think this was Paul's synagogue. The one that he attended. There's nothing in the text that says that flat out, but I think the implication is there. These are men from Cilicia, Tarsus being the chief city. And here's Saul in the background orchestrating this whole thing. So what do they do? They have a debate, verse 10 but they are unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You and I might say it like this. Stephen won hands down. Not a contest. There was two things that they could not cope with. They could not cope with the wisdom with which he spoke, and that is his content, and they could not cope with his delivery, the spirit in which he spoke. He was zealous, he was vibrant, he was enthusiastic, he was convinced of the truth. And so as Stephen got up to debate these Pharisees in the law, there's two things that overwhelmed them. Number one, his presentation, his spirit in which he spoke, and the passion with which he spoke, and his wisdom with which he spoke. They could not argue with his arguments. And here he had probably attended that synagogue. He was probably a God-fearing Jew before his conversion to Christ. And now he has the ability, only at the most a couple years old in the Lord, because we're only two years out from the, re- the ascension of the Lord, Within two years, he has the ability to win a debate against some of the most highly trained Pharisees in the city of Jerusalem. And they put Stephen up there, and they line up their best, and he smokes them. And they just can't cope with it. So what do you do if you can't cope with somebody's arguments? You switch to what's called an ad hominem attack, right? If you can't deal with what somebody is saying, the content of their arguments, then you just attack their person. So that's what they do. Look at verse 11. So they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Those are basically two accusations that you're going to see them sort of develop and unfold here in a second. But note, blasphemous words against the holy place, that is the temple, and blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now they're going to give us an idea of what they mean by blasphemous words. Verse 12, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So if you can't deal with somebody's arguments, then you just attack their person. You just take what they say, you twist it, you attack him as an individual, forget his arguments, that's what they do. They they switch to an attack against the man, an ad hominem attack. And they're going after Stephen personally because they can't cope with his arguments because he's he's whooped them in a public debate, publicly in front of all these people. They obviously are not going to make any headway unless they deal with Stephen. 
So they've got to get rid of him. So they induce men to secretly spread these accusations against Stephen. And in the course of spreading these accusations, the people kind of get riled up against Stephen, the elders and the scribes, and they go up, they grab him, and they drag him before the council. And this is the same council that Peter and John and the rest of the apostles have stood before in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. This is the same council where Gamaliel is present on the council. Gamaliel is the one who gave that sort of um, half-minded advice, pragmatic advice in chapter 5 that ended up sparing the lives of all 12 of the apostles when the council was intent to kill them. So keep in mind, this council is already hostile. They've already brought these apostles in and threatened them. They brought them in again with the intention of killing them, but Gamaliel and his advice manages to get them off and they just simply send them away with a beating. And now here Stephen comes before the same council. And the council is thinking in their minds, we've got to deal with this. Many of the chief pre- many of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. And this man is able to articulate well enough to smoke anybody else that they put up in a debate. We've got to do something to make some headway against the Christians. Because in their minds, in the Jewish and the priest's minds, these Christians were blasphemers. And so they induce these men, they bring them up before the council, and they bring false witnesses against them. And here's what the false witnesses testify. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and against the law. There's two things about Stephen's debate, the content of his argument, two things about what he was proposing and what he was teaching that they used to get him killed. The first one, they said, he teaches against this place, that is the temple. And he teaches against the law, that is Moses. Now the temple represented the house of God, the place of God's presence. The law represented the mind of God, the will of God, and the revelation of God. So in their minds, they're saying, Stephen has consistently and incessantly spoken against God's house and God's word. That equates to blaspheme. And that is enough to get Stephen on trial. So they bring forward the false witnesses and look how they articulate those two accusations. Verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. We have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place, the temple, and alter the customs that Moses handed down to him. An attack against the temple and an attack against the law. Now, is there any truth to their accusations? You know there's a grain of truth in both of those accusations, isn't there? Do you think that Stephen actually said in the debate or to these men that Jesus would tear down the temple? Stephen didn't say that, did he? What is it likely that he said? The grain of truth is this. Jesus did predict that the temple would be destroyed. He didn't say he would destroy it. He just predicted that it would be destroyed, and it was in 70 A.D. by Titus and the Romans when they came in and sacked Jerusalem. It was destroyed. Jesus did predict that the temple would be destroyed. He also predicted that He Himself would be the fulfillment of the temple. There's coming a day when men will not go up to Jerusalem or to Mount Gerizim to worship, but they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And now the apostles are beginning to understand if what Christ did is real, He has replaced the temple. There's no need for the temple. Because He has fulfilled it. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the temple work. All of the offerings, all of the sacrifices, all of the feasts are fulfilled in Christ. 
And if what he did, if he did what he said he did, and he has made an atonement for sin, if he has wiped out the sin debt for all those who will trust in him, then there is no need for the temple. It has been replaced by Christ. Later on, Peter would say, you and I are living stones being built up as a temple for the dwelling place of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you and I are the household of God, stones by which God is building a dwelling place, a habitation for himself in the Spirit. You and I are the replacement of the temple in the spiritual sense. What God does in us, in dwelling in us individually and corporately as a body, has superseded and replaced the temple. And with it, all of the priesthood, all of the works of the priesthood, everything that was attached to it, has now been ultimately fulfilled and superseded by the work of Christ. So is it true what Stephen said? Well, yeah, there's a grain of truth in there, but did he ever say that? I doubt it. What did he likely say? He likely just told them what the ramifications of the resurrection and the Messiahship of Christ meant. Here's what it means to the temple. Here's what it means to the priesthood. Here's what it means to a strictly Jewish race. That God is now opening the work up and it's on a wider scale. Well, what about the second accusation that he spoke against the law and against Moses? Is there truth in that? Likely a grain of truth. Jesus Christ Himself is the fulfillment of the law. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. And all of the ceremonial law, all of the outward expression of Jewish particularism has been done away with. It's been set aside. We don't have sacrifices anymore because Christ is our sacrifice. We don't celebrate the Passover anymore because Christ is our Passover Lamb who has been sacrificed for us. So all of the sacrifices, all of the feasts, all of the festivals have been done away, set aside, fulfilled in Christ. And what this indicates to us is that the apostles, even these early Jewish Christians, are beginning to understand that the wider scope of the work of Christ is incompatible with all of the Old Testament system. It's been done away with. It has been superseded and fulfilled by the Messiah. And the Jews said that constitutes an attack on the temple and an attack on the law. Is it an attack on the temple to say those things? Is it an attack on the law to say those things? Certainly not. To say that Christ fulfills all of that, to say that all of those things pointed to the Messiah, the Son of God, is only to magnify their importance. And Stephen is going to show us in Acts chapter 7 just how important he thought the law and the temple were in the plan of God. Their accusations are false. There's a little grain of truth in there that they take and they twist and they make it destructive and they make it an attack on the temple and the law, and it's not. And Stephen certainly didn't mean that because you'll see him unfold that next week in his sermon. But they raise these false accusations against him. He's brought all this attack against the law. Interestingly enough, do you remember that they accused Jesus of the same thing at his trial? They brought forward false witnesses who said, we heard this man say that he's going to tear down the temple made with hands and build one in three days not made with hands. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they took that statement and they twisted it. We heard him say he's going to destroy the temple and build it again, a temple without hands, in three days. Well, it worked to get Jesus crucified, so they bring out the same accusation against Stephen, and they've got him on record in a public debate arguing about the implications of the Messiahship and the resurrection of Christ, and so they level the same accusations against him. Interestingly enough, 
they would take the same accusation and they would raise it against Saul of Tarsus, Paul, in Acts chapter 21, verse 28. They say, men, this is the man who preaches everywhere against our temple and against our law. And here's Saul at Stephen's trial listening to the same accusations be raised against Stephen and they're going to get Stephen killed. And later on they would accuse Saul, the Apostle Paul, of the very same thing. Now Stephen is able in a public debate to articulate all of this and defend it and he smokes them at it. And he does such a good job of defending the faith and standing up for Christ that they're left with one option. We have to kill this man or we have to admit that what he says is true. Such was Stephen's character and such was his capability. Look at verse 15 and notice his countenance. This is really an amazing verse. Verse 15, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Everyone who was sitting there, 71 plus people in the council, fixed their eyes on Stephen and they all discerned something about him that they could only describe as having the face of an angel. What does that mean? Has anybody ever seen an angel's face? Anybody ever here ever seen the face of an angel? Well, you say, I would expect it to be supple and soft and there would be no five o'clock shadow on the face of that angel and it would be smooth and probably white and I would imagine him to have a smile on his face unless it's one of those avenging angels spoken of in Revelation that reaps out the wrath of God's judgment. What does the face of an angel look like? And what does this tell us about Stephen? Some people have suggested that it probably refers to a calm, submitted, peaceful, confident expression on his face. He was a man who was just at rest, at peace. He was calm and he had that calm expression of meekness and gentleness on his face. I think it probably refers partly to his expression, but I think there's something more. I think there's something that was visible to all 70 people on the council. And the only way they could describe it was to say it was like looking into the face of an angel. Now, if an angel were to appear here, having been fresh from the presence of Almighty God in all of His glory, what would you expect to see? A shining brightness. Would you not? When Moses came down from the mountain, having been with God for that period of time, Exodus, I think it's chapter 34, says his face shone the glory of God as a reflection. People who have been and are in the presence of God reflect that glory. And I think that what you have here is a supernatural token by which God places his approval on Stephen and he does so in a visible way in front of all 70 of these people. And I think that Stephen was in the presence of God because at the end of his sermon, it says he looked into heaven and he sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. And I think that Stephen, even right there in the face of this council, was standing, not physically or visibly or able to see it himself, but he was just surrounded by God and his face had a glow about it that all 70 people sitting there would have said, his face just shines like the face of an angel, having been in the presence of God. Stephen, as he is accused of misrepresenting and misinterpreting the law, stands there having been given by God the same glow about him that Moses did when he received the law. And I think this was God's way of saying, my approval rested upon Moses and his ministry of the law, and my approval rests upon this man and his interpretation of the law. And they saw it. His face like an angel. 
And do they fall down and repent? Do they back off and say, whoa, we've got this wrong? They don't, do they? They go forward with their intention to kill him. And we'll look at his sermon, all of chapter 7 next week, and we'll see Stephen answer his objections and try and bring the gospel to these men as he stands up for Christ. I want to ask you two things this morning. First of all this, are you like Stephen in that regard? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you a vessel that God can stoop to use this year in Awana and in Sunday school and in your neighborhood because you are yielded to and obedient to and submitted to the Word and the Spirit of God? Does He control you or do you control yourself? And have you yielded yourself to the Spirit so that you can be filled and thus be used by God? Don't think for a moment that God will use you with any effectiveness whatsoever in any area unless it's the Spirit of God in you that does it. That's the only way there can ever be fruit. You can do all kinds of good things. You can do all kinds of things that you think might be pleasing in the sight of God. But if it's not the manifestation of the Spirit of God through you, it's vain. Are you filled with the Spirit? And second, do you handle personal attacks like Stephen did? You'll notice that they saw the face of an angel, not the face of somebody who is hateful, spiteful, vengeful, or offended. There was meekness. There was grace. There was rest. There was confidence in the hand and the care and the protection and the presence of God. And these men took what he had said and they twisted it. They misrepresented it. They misrepresented him. They attacked himself and the teachings of Christ. And all of it was false. And what did Stephen do? Did he bite back at them and snarl at them and say, you're going to get yours coming? Did he, did he attack them personally? Not at all. What did he do? He just sat there with the face of an angel. And you're going to see next week just how much calm and confidence and peace he had in the presence of God. Is that how you handle personal attack? Are you filled with the Spirit? And do you respond to personal attacks the way Stephen did? If you're attacked for the cause of Christ and you're filled with the Spirit, I can tell you how you'll respond. Just like Stephen. There's no other way to respond if you're filled with the Spirit. Our Father, we thank You for what we learned from Stephen, this man of faith and confidence and boldness. And Father, our, our hearts are convicted this morning that we are not yielded to You as we should be in every area and aspect of life. And we want to repent of that. And to acknowledge, Father, that You are our God and our King and our Sovereign Lord. And we need to trust You and yield to You in every last detail of what You bring into our lives. And we thank You for how Stephen modeled that. He was a man that was full of the Spirit. And we desire that same thing. And we also desire to handle personal attacks just as Stephen did. Not to attack back and not to be bitter or threaten or revile in return but to simply entrust ourselves to Him who judges righteously and let the attacks fall where they may. We thank You for what we've learned from Him and we ask Your blessing on our day in Jesus' name. Amen. And turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we observe our communion service this morning. We'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning at verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In our observing of communion, we are remembering by doing this what Christ has done for us by allowing himself to die as our sacrifice. And as the author of Hebrews says, we no longer need a high priest who enters first to make an offering for his own sin and then the sins of the people, but we have a high priest in heavens, in the heavens who has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And having done so, he has sat down at the right hand of God. And there is no offering that yet needs to be made. There is no sacrifice that now needs to be offered. There is nothing that you and I need to do to earn it. We just need to place our faith and our trust in the one who offered that sacrifice on our behalf. And in so doing, appropriate his work for us on the cross. And so what we're remembering this morning is that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. He himself offered himself and sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished and it's done. We don't need to work for it. We don't need to strive after it. It is an accomplished fact. My sin has been borne by the Son of God. He is my sin substitute. He took all my sin in his own body on the tree, Peter says, so that we, having died to sin, should live to righteousness. And so we have the opportunity this morning to do those two things. First of all, we want to recognize that we have died to sin, and then we want to uh, cleanse ourselves spiritually before the Lord and live to righteousness. So we're going to take a couple minutes this morning, and I would invite you as we bow our heads to bring yourself before the Lord. And Paul says if you eat or drink the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment to yourself meaning that if you are not a believer and you partake of communion, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself because you're saying, this was done for me, and in fact, it, it hasn't been. You've not been bought by blood or purchased by his sacrifice because you haven't trusted in him. And second, you and I can eat and drink the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner if we harbor sin in our lives and we make a blaspheme of this and what he did because what he did took away sin so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness. So let's do spiritual business before the Lord. Close our eyes and then we'll pray together. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.